So I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 1, verse 14 to 17, and then chapter 3, 19 to 26. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then over to chapter 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, today we're doing something I don't think we've ever done before at TNE. I know I myself have never done this. We're looking at one of the five Reformation slogans or ideas that the reformers in the 16th century lived by and some of them died by. And the reason it's a little bit different today is that we're going to look at each of the slogans through the eyes of one of the reformers. So later in the year, we'll look at the Reformation idea, Scripture alone. And we'll look at that through the eyes of William Tyndale. Uh, We'll also see God's glory alone. And we'll look at that through the eyes of John Calvin. Christ alone through the eyes of Thomas Cranmer. Faith alone through the eyes of Ulrich Zwingli. And today, we're looking at grace alone through the eyes of of Luther. So we're doing something that's a little bit different um, to what we normally do. Like many of the reformers, our usual habit is to work our way through a book in the Bible, like we've been doing in Habakkuk, chapter by chapter, and like we'll do next week in Matthew. So we'll come back to this later in the year. But today, we're going to look at this key idea that comes from the Bible, and it's an idea that the reformers saw was critical that we must never forget God's grace alone. But first, let me give you some background to, to how this truth was rediscovered. In 1347, the plague first came to Europe and for the next couple of hundred years, it wreaked havoc. They estimate that around 30% of the population died. And in some cities, that was up to 50%. Once you got the Black, the black Plague you were pretty much guaranteed that you would die a horrible, painful death, deserted by your friends and family. Between the plague, famines and the wars of the time, if you lived in the 15th century, death was never far from you. 
and your own death, actually, was always on your mind. Back in those times, religion was at the centre of life and the centre of most people's religious life was making sure that they did everything they possibly could to be ready for when they died. So everywhere you turned, there were these pictures and, and carvings that reminded you that you would die. And then you would either face heaven or hell. So not only was death never far from your mind, but also sin and the devil. And the reason sin and the devil were on people's minds when they thought about death was because back then most people weren't sure where they'd go when they died. So a priest named Dietrich Cold wrote a very popular book back then called Mirror of a Christian Man. And he expresses what most people felt. He wrote, There are three things that I know to be true that frequently make my heart heavy. The first troubles my spirit because I will have to die. The second troubles my heart more because I do not know when. The third troubles me above all. I do not know where I will go. If that was how a priest felt, you could imagine how everyday, ordinary people felt. What hope did they have of making it to heaven? The church and the theologians of the time developed a whole set of practices and exercises to help people avoid hell. And what they taught people to do was summed up like this. Do what lies within you. Do your very best. Do what lies within you. Do your very best. In other words, if you try to love God the best, to the best of your ability, however weak that may be, God would reward your efforts with the grace to do even better. Now, the idea of this teaching was that it was supposed to help people get to heaven and it was supposed to help relieve their worry about death and where they would go. If they just did their best, no matter how pathetic that might be, they'd be right. So, salvation, getting to heaven, was pictured like a ladder. <clears throat> Here's actually... Uh, a painting that they've uncovered just recently, about 30 years ago, in a church that was hidden behind um, the wall of this kind of ladder idea. This is probably from the 1200s. And um, so what they taught is, as you tried your best, God would give you more and more grace to go higher and higher, so you can kind of see hell down the bottom there and heaven up the top. And if you fell off the ladder because of sin... You can see some people kind of falling off the ladder, even in that picture. If you fell off because of sin, that's okay. You can always get back on and start all over again. So the church taught that salvation is a process within us as we perfect ourselves. We become righteous before God as we do righteous acts. We're saved by God's grace as we cooperate and contribute to our salvation. The kind of things that would help you up that ladder were things like doing good works, attending church, mass, praying to the saints, paying money to go and see relics. Relics were things like bits of wood from the cross, bones of the saints, even strange things like some of Mary's milk, apparently. And also what would help you go up the ladder was buying indulgences. Now, the idea of the indulgence was that some people did so many good works that they kind of had a stockpile left over that you could access when you paid money to the church. 
And so by accessing their leftover good works, you could move up the ladder. And then in the end, if you didn't make it, and chances are you wouldn't, the church introduced the idea of purgatory, a kind of second chance, where your failures in this life could be atoned for so that you'd eventually get to heaven. This is all sounding pretty much like a typical Sunday here, what we'd speak about, isn't it? So different, isn't it? But just, mind you, purgatory was no picnic either. It wasn't like a waiting room for heaven. It was painful suffering where you'd make up for what you'd done wrong in this life. Thomas More described it like this. If ye pity any man in pain, never ye knew pain comparable to ours, whose fire as far passeth in heat all the fires that ever burned upon the earth. Now this is what people believed 500 years ago. And to us today, I mean even as I'm saying it now in front of you from this stage where we don't talk about anything that comes close to those kind of beliefs, it just sounds outrageous, doesn't it? It sounds like manipulation. It sounds like exploitation of people and and it sounds like craziness and in places it definitely was all those things but behind it all was this natural sensible belief that pretty much all humans share and that is that for God to accept us we need to do our part sounds reasonable enough doesn't it if we do our best then God won't deny us if we do our bit, God will do His. I mean, that idea is very much still alive today. When it comes to being right with God, we expect that our effort is going to be needed. You know, ask anyone who believes that there's a God, but doesn't necessarily have a relationship with Him. Ask Him on what basis God will accept Him. And what's that person going to say? Well, I'm a pretty good bloke, I do the right thing, do my best, so I should be right. Or perhaps if there's someone who's a bit more self-reflective, a bit more self-aware, they might say, well, God will weigh up whether I've done more good than bad and he'll make a call on that. Or if they're even more self-perceptive, they might say, God doesn't want me, I've got no chance of being accepted by him, so I don't even try. But behind all of those ideas is the one idea that to be right with God, our effort is needed. It's the common sense idea that you'll find built into all of us. And it's the idea behind most religions too. For God to accept you or for you to reach a certain state of being, you need to follow a set of moral and ceremonial rules. You need to play your part. And even in churches today, you can find this idea. I remember talking to someone who preached a sermon as a guest preacher in a church in Africa and in his sermon he was saying that we're saved by what God has done and not by what we do and after his sermon he sat down and and the minister of the church got up and did an impromptu sermon to correct him and said no and he literally said we are saved by the sweat of our brow. Now 500 years ago the church taught a more sophisticated version of this very same common sense idea. But the Bible teaches something radically different because the Bible teaches us that we can never be righteous before God based on what we do. 
No amount of effort will ever make us right with God. Look again at Romans 3 verse 19. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See that? No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one. And if no one can be declared righteous by doing God's own law that he gives us in the Bible, then no one can be righteous before God by anything they do. Keeping God's laws, your best shot at being righteous before God. And Paul says that ain't going to work. The ladder to heaven was supposed to help people, but Paul says here, there is no ladder. There's no hope of standing before God righteous based on our own effort. The best that the law will do for you is to show you that you're a sinner with nothing to say for yourself before an angry God. And the best that our best effort before God can show us is that it just isn't good enough. Martin Luther was someone who came to rediscover this truth. First of all, he discovered it in his own experience and then he discovered it in the Bible. Luther lived in Saxony, which is um, a part of modern-day Germany, and he was studying to get a law degree. One day, though, he was caught in a a storm as he was travelling between towns, and he was thrown to the ground by a flash of lightning. And so he did what any of us would do. He promised to God that he'd become a monk if he was safely brought through the storm. And so that's exactly what he did. In 1505, he became a monk. Luther... Um, joined the monks in doing what monks do. Monks dedicated their lives to earning for themselves spiritual currency so that they could move up the ladder. And Luther put in his full effort to try and earn salvation. So what he did is he'd attend six worship services a day, which began at 2am. And between the services, Luther would fit in intense prayer, meditation and spiritual exercises. Now, all of that so far, that's just what all the monks did, but Luther was a bit of an extreme person, and so he'd put in even more effort. He later wrote, I tortured myself with prayers, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again, I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. Now, you'd think with all that effort, that Luther, of all people, would feel that he was doing enough. You'd think that he'd feel pretty confident that God was happy with him. But Luther's efforts had the opposite effect on him. He was in a constant state of anxiety about his righteousness. And he later wrote that when he'd go to confession, um, and he said, sometimes my confessor said to me when I repeatedly discussed silly sins with him, you are a fool, God is not angry with you, but you are angry with God. He'd entered the monastery to overcome his anxiety before God, but instead he found himself more anxious than ever that God wasn't happy with his efforts. Luther couldn't believe that God would be satisfied by his best efforts to attain his salvation. 
And at this stage, Luther didn't realize that the Bible agreed with him. So you've got to remember that back then, hardly anybody had access to the Bible. It was in Latin, so even if you did have access to the Bible, chances are you didn't have it in your native language. But in 512, sorry, 1512, Luther was directed by his superior to continue his theological studies, even though it may surprise you to know that Luther didn't feel that he was worthy of this. And a bit later, he actually became professor of biblical studies. And he began lecturing in in 1513. And as he lectured on the Psalms, then Romans, then Galatians, and then Hebrews, he came to realise that everything he'd ever been told about how he could be right with God was wrong. I was just thinking about that list of things to lecture on. I don't know whether he sort of sought those out or whether God directed him to those books, but what a collection of things to, to have come across. Psalms, then Romans, then Galatians, then Hebrews. See, Luther said he beat upon Romans 1.17, wanting to know what St Paul wanted from him. This is what Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He beat upon that. And what he eventually rediscovered as God opened his mind was the clear, the clear truth that had been almost lost for centuries, that righteousness from God is a free gift, completely independent of human effort. Being right with God comes to us because of God's grace alone. Luther rediscovered that rather than God's righteousness being a threat, it was being offered as a gift. And rather than God's grace helping us to help ourselves, God's grace did everything. It was not the sinner in themselves who changed, but the sinner's situation before God that changes. Luther stumbled across the great truth that we know is in the Bible everywhere, that because of God's grace alone, we can be at the very same time a sinner as we are before God completely justified and righteous. We are at the same time a sinner and righteous in God's eyes. In Romans 3.21, Paul, after saying that no one can be righteous by their own efforts, says this, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Luther knew all too well, but he rediscovered this in verse 24. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The righteousness of of God is, is not a demand to be met by our effort, but a gift to be accepted by faith, freely. There's nothing we can contribute because it's already completed at the cross. Our status before God, it's dependent 
on Jesus' death on the cross for us. Full stop. Done. It's dependent on what he did for us, not on what we've done in the past, not on what we're doing right now, not on what we will do in the future. Luther put it like this, God does not want to redeem us through our own, but through external righteousness and wisdom, not through one that comes from us and grows in us, but one that comes from outside, not through one that originates here on earth, but one that comes from heaven. In other words, God freely gives us Jesus' righteousness without our contribution, without our cooperation, without our effort whatsoever. It's all His grace and it's His grace all alone. Luther wrote, the gospel rejects the wicked idea of the entire kingdom of the Pope, the teaching that a Christian man must be uncertain about the grace of God toward him. We don't do good works to be acceptable to God. Instead, we do good works because we're already acceptable. Luther, he turned the whole approach of the church on its head. There's no ladder to climb, no purgatory. We're instantly right with God through Jesus. And as you can imagine, the Catholic Church didn't appreciate Luther telling them that they'd got it all wrong. To begin with, um, Luther hoped that he could help in reforming the church, transforming them. But it soon became obvious that the leaders of the church weren't interested in bringing their beliefs and lives in line with the Bible. In fact, very quickly, the leaders of the church wanted Luther dead. And he wouldn't have lasted very long at all, except for God's sovereignty in working through the prince of his area, Frederick the Wise, and causing him to protect Luther. At the Diet of Worms, he stood before the emperor and the princes and the lords. Remember, he's just a nobody monk. And he was presented with his works and he was told that he must recant their errors. And this is what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot. And I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. This truth that Luther had rediscovered in the Bible, that we can be right with God through grace alone, he considered so important that he was willing to live by it, and he was willing even to die for it. He didn't die that day. In fact, Luther was one of the lucky reformers in that he got to live out his natural life because he was protected by his prince for the rest of his life. There was a plan to kill him though and so his prince, Frederick the Wise, had to kidnap him and hide him away in order to save his life. Now, since this is such an important truth from the Bible, it's worth us just for the, these last few minutes thinking a little bit about where we might be at risk of denying it. Especially since what comes naturally to us, what seems sensible, is not God's grace alone, but God's grace with me doing my bit. Now, I mentioned the, ch the church in Africa, 
getting to heaven by the sweat of our brow. I, I don't think we're in danger of that kind of idea. Though I'm guessing we probably all know religious people who think they need to go to church or pray or do certain things in order to kind of earn their salvation. We've probably met people like that. But I don't think that's our danger here, not for most of us. It's probably a more subtle danger than that. And since we've got uh, the prince with us, I thought we'd get Wim to come up the front. Come up now, Wim. And um, we'd ask him if there are subtle ways in churches in Cambodia that our contribution our cooperation gets introduced alongside God's grace as a need for salvation. So, Wim, I asked you to think about this a little bit. Are there ways um, in, that you see in the Cambodian church where this subtly comes in, the idea of contrib- um, contributing or cooperating with God in order to reach salvation? Yeah, it's, it's the whole culture. It's um, Buddhism. It's the air they breathe. It's, it's a culture and a religion of merit, of doing good, and of earning merit for your next life. And so when people become Christians, they don't automatically understand or shift from works to grace. Even the word grace itself in Cambodian, in Khmer, is the word kun, which can mean good deeds or merit, or favor. <laughs> so it's a very confusing word, a word to use um, in the Bible. But in the sermons, you often notice that people, that pastors choose texts that focus on what we need to do. So they have topical preaching about um, evangelize, and guess what? We have to evangelize more. Prayer, we have to pray more. Tithing, we have to tithe more. Um, and so it becomes a bit works-based. And um, sometimes they even say God's part is um, he justifies us, he mm-hmm. um, makes us right with himself, but our part is the sanctification. So mm. growing, in right, uh, growing in holiness, that is our part. Mm. And so the sermons reflect that mm. as well. Okay, thank you. That's really insightful. And that last bit there is quite similar to that kind of 1500s medieval kind of theology, um, the latter kind of idea. Thank you, Wim. But now it's time for us to turn our attention back to ourselves and think about what about us? Um, What gives you confidence in your status before God? Or if you put it the opposite way, what makes you anxious that your status before God might not be okay? So if you don't do all the things that a healthy Christian should do, read your Bible daily, share the gospel with others, be on rosters, attend church missionary events, all those sorts of things. Do you feel like your status before God is threatened? If so, then your confidence is kind of lying in your performance. Or if you sin terribly, you know, you do something that you just never thought that you would ever do. Do you think that your status before God will change? Well, if so, then your confidence lies in your purity. See, our status before God is perfect and unshakable because it's completely outside us. It's given to us in Jesus. Tim Keller writes about another subtle danger for us. He says, It is possible to, sus- to subscribe to every orthodox doctrine. You know, think grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the Trinity And nevertheless, fail to communicate the gospel to people's hearts in a way that brings about repentance, joy and spiritual growth. One way this happens is through dead 
orthodoxy, in which such pride grows in our doctrinal correctness that sound teaching and right church practice become a kind of works righteousness. That would be terribly ironic, wouldn't it, if that happened? If we ended up placing confidence in our status before God, in our right belief, you know, that's what gave us a clear status before God, instead of in God's grace alone. The irony would be awful. Keller goes on. Carefulness in doctrine and life is, of course, critical. But when it is accompanied in a church by self-righteousness, mockery, disdain of everyone else, and a contentious, combative attitude, it shows that while the doctrine of justification may be believed, a strong spirit of legalism reigns nonetheless. It is possible to get an A grade on a doctrinal test and describe accurately the doctrine, doctrines of your salvation, of our salvation, yet be blind to their true implications and power. Now, as a church that takes the Bible incredibly seriously, a church that considers correct theology very important, we need not to relax on those things, but we need to make sure that we know their power. Do we know God's grace and and not just know about it? Do we feel our own unworthiness and God's holiness? And because of this, feel intensely the liberation that it is to know that we're fully accepted, not based on ourselves, but based on Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Do we feel that for ourselves? And what about for others? Do we feel that for others? When you know that it's God's grace alone that enables you to stand before Him, it changes the way that you view other people. You no longer question their status before God based on whether they fit the mould that you think they should, based on whether they perform as a Christian as you think they should. If we truly know the grace of God, when people come in here and they look different to us, we don't judge them, we accept them. See, we neither presume because they look a certain way or dress a certain way or speak or act a certain way, we neither presume that they are or aren't right before God because it has nothing to do with their effort and it has everything to do with whether they rest on God's grace So imagine someone walks in here, they've got tattoos, they smoke and and they love playing the pokies, they're divorced and it turns out they're gay. The scandal of this message that Luther rediscovered in the Bible is that they may well have the same status before God as you, righteous, perfect, pure, in God's eyes because it doesn't depend on them and it doesn't depend on you it all depends on whether we rest in Jesus death for us in our place or not now of course we know that when God saves us he doesn't leave us where we're at he changes us but these changes flow from our salvation they don't lead to it so when someone comes through these doors our job's not to figure them out and judge them. Our job is to show them grace like we've been shown grace. And whether they look like Christians or not, whatever that might look like, 
our job is to point them to the gospel, that whoever we are and whatever we've done, we call on each other to rest on God's grace and to rest on it alone. Let's pray and ask for God's help in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way that you are sovereign over history and caused the incredible truth of Scripture to be rediscovered. Lord, we thank you that we are are not a generation that's been left without the gospel of grace. And yet, Lord, as we look around at our world, we see that the natural way of approaching you is still the same. We still think, Lord, that our effort is needed and, Lord, in our pride, we think that it's going to be acceptable to you. Or, Lord, if we don't understand you, we don't realise that you have made the way open in Christ by your grace alone. Lord, we ask that we would be a people that truly know your grace, that feel it ourselves, that we know our unworthiness in and of ourselves, but we also know your complete acceptance because of Jesus' death in our place. Lord, help us to be a people who are affected by this grace, who treat others with grace just like you have treated us. Lord, help us not to judge people's status before you and certainly not to judge it based on how they present. Lord, help us instead to encourage all of us to keep resting in your grace for your glory and because that is the only way that we can stand before you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your amazing love for us that you created this way that we could bypass ladders and purgatory and all such evil and awful thoughts, Lord. And we thank you that in Christ we can stand completely confident before you for all time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.